Welcome to the rock. I have to say, Jimmy, is that t-shirt ironic or are you doing a Roger Moore skiing off a cliff? <laughs> <laughs> are you absolutely going for it look it is um it's t-shirt was actually given to me by my in-laws uh, which is a davis cup t-shirt for our lovely listeners in case we keep this bit and it's got the big uh british flag <laughs> yeah so um look i sheppy every time i come on this pod i pull out something else from the drawer like in the dark so i don't make g up you know so this just happens to me. <laughs> the amount of times yeah. you've been wearing like a sort of a, a nighty with your hair in rollers <laughs> just because you grabbed the first thing you could get and that involved <laughs> curling your hair. Yeah. yeah. You look like, like the wolf as grandma. It's uh, <laughs> good stuff. Um, but from my point of view, for like the first 10 minutes of this conversation, I just thought you were wearing a white t shirt. And then you just lean back a little bit. So I saw the top and it was like, bam, 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 bam. And then you lean back down again and it cut off. I'm like, did I just imagine that? And then a few minutes later, it was like, bam, 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 And it went down again. I was like, oh, no, no. Yeah. And that's what I had to mention it. So that was that was my experience. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> Jimmy, was there any further small talk of them? Because I feel we might have a little bit to talk about officially, as it were. Yeah, I think so too. So should we jump, dive? Yes. Jump. And by that, I'm now going to tangent in my first official tangent and say this. Because I feel it needs to be said. And I want hope that these episodes are pretty timeless. So having said that, um, very sad. Found out you told me this morning that Kirsty Alley has just died. And not to be a total downer, but it's sad. And I liked Kirsty Alley and I like Kirsty Alley, but it's especially poignant for me right now because for the last few years, me and Marta have been watching Cheers. And we, you know, right from the beginning, after having seen, you know, Three Men and a Baby and The Good Place, so she's had that Danson specific, oh, and, and of course, Curb. So really thinking of Danson as Silver Fox as he is now. And then us starting episode one, season one, Shelley Long, pure. Dancing. And it was before the show had sort of, you know, sort of, it started off kind of more like Taxi, a bit more 70s grit, even though it was still early 80s. But then it got more glossy and Dancing's hair got bigger and Goodbye Coach and Hello Woody. And then I've been watching now and it's like five seasons of Shelley Long. And I was kind of just waiting for, for Kirsty Alley to come because I was very invested in the Shelley, you know, Sam and Diane relationship. Uh, but I was like, when I watched it, which was when you watched it, Jimmy, which I'm going to say is late 80s, because I remember talking about it outside Miss Scott's class in the playground on a brisk morn, probably Monday, because it was always on Channel 4, Friday nights, and Cheers was on, and I would watch it back in the day with Mummy and Johnny, and that was nice, we'd eat crisps and go yaboo and enjoy it all, and it was pure, you know, season six onwards, it was Kirsty Alley. And whilst it was still on, I think it ran until it was certainly like the early 90s, whilst it was still on, Channel 4 did start showing season one. So I did see the Shelley Long stuff whilst I was still in it originally, but it was always Kirsty Alley all the way for Becca. And then it ending and everything, and so I've always just thought about that. But I never actually think about Kirsty Alley and think of Cheers, strictly. I think of her in Star Trek 2. And I think of her and being a Scientologist, unfortunately. Um, and also, of course, Luffy's talking. And I read her autobiography once, randomly. So in any case, I worked in a bookshop. I had time on my hands. 
So I, well, I read the Warwick Davis one too. Anyway, in terms of Kirsten Alley, just very, very recently, whilst we're watching Cheers, and we haven't been watching it 100% consistently, but we've been having little bursts and then a little hiatus and then a burst, as you do. And then, and then we got to finally the final Diane, and it was good. And I don't know if I'd seen it before. Maybe I had. And then I was very interested in, like, you know, it's kind of like Cheers the next generation. I was also, from Marta's point of view, having been Trinity really long and being invested in that relationship, you know, where to go from here. But they do the very clever thing of switching it, and Sam's lost the bar, and she's now his boss and he's an employee, and that changes the whole power dynamic. And she's not an intellectual like Diane. She's very smart, but she's business, and she's all about, you know, she, she would like to be a Kennedy. And it's that sort of, you know, type of thing and it's a different thing and so of course she looks down on Sam but in a totally different way that Diane looked down on Sam so that works as well and we're about five episodes in and I've been really enjoying it and when the title sequence comes up again I've been totally used to the Shelley Long Ted Danson title card at the credits and then it comes up with just Ted Danson and then it's a totally new picture for the first time in six seasons and it's the representation that's meant to be you know Rebecca and it's Kirstie Alley and that gave me such a spine shiver when it, because I knew it was going to be something different, but I'd forgotten what the image was. And I was very familiar with all the other, you know, the nose face at the end and everything. And it gave me such a spine shiver when it came up and was like Kirstie Alley. It was such a familiar image that I hadn't thought about for like easily 30 years. Such a crazy idea. Um, and it was so nice. And so I've been really enjoying watching this. And then, you know, right in my midst of this, I have this very sad news that Kirstie Alley died. So, She's great in Cheers, and she ad-libs a couple of times, like there's like little bloopers, which happens throughout Cheers, but it's great, because of course it's in front of the live studio audience. But she, in the first episode that she's in, goes to storm into her office, and the door won't open. She goes, I locked myself out. And then she tries it again, and opens it, no I didn't, and she goes in. And, it, and they kept it in, and it's cool, and it, it's lovely. And something else happened a few episodes later where actually Ted Danson forgot his line. He went, I'm going to go and see Nikki. No, I'm going this way. I'm going to go and see Matt. And he turns to um, just, you know, Rebecca, to Kirstie Alley, who's just on the bar. And he goes, right? And she goes, mm-hmm. And he goes, right. And it's just, it's another flub, but they keep it in and they, they stay in character. It's really cool. Um, <laughs> so anyway, there. So I thought I, I just better say it and date the episode because it was worth it. And I would have mentioned this at some point anyway. So I especially wanted to mention it today. Nice, Sheppy. Well, it's a lovely tribute to her. I think, um, yeah, she's uh, she she was big for us. Look who's talking. Mm. Look who's talking to you know these Mrs. Were, Parker Stevenson. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, sad news, man. So, welcome to Shoulders of Giants. I'm Jimmy. Hello, I'm Sheppy. And without prompting, I'm just going to tell you, Sheppy, that this is the What If podcast for sequels, prequels uh, galore. I know, listen to that. I remember. Oh, my breath is literally taken. Literally taken. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, look, you know, the coffee's kicked in. So, we're, yeah, that, that's who we are and what we're about, Sheppy. <laughs> so, Jimmy, with the, with the What If podcast you mentioned, what does that mean? <laughs> It means that uh, we we come up with sequels and prequels and uh, side projects and TV series to movies and movies to TV series. And we deal with existing, lovely, current IP and make it our own. And yes, come up with prequels to each other. Yes. This is All my- right. Okay. We should probably 
try and pull up from this. It was it was going pretty well, and then it, it did begin to plummet somewhat. But never mind. I'm loving it. I love everything. Um, so this week is actually a bit of a special one, isn't it, Jimmy? Because uh, it's a uh, well. What do you say? So this week, Sheppy, we've been set a little challenge by a listener called Jason from Kent, whose favourite Bond is Connery. He gave us uh, two requests, The Thing from 1982 and 1996's The Rock, and I chose the latter for us for this week. So um, that, my friend, is what we should... Very exciting. Uh, very, very nice. Well, I'm, I'm loving it. This is great. In terms um, of The Thing... First of all, I would have to say straight up, if I did make a film called The Thing 2, it would be about the other hand from the Adams family and like what the, I guess, the left hand, I, I think, and he turns up as like, how does that, what happens? But it's mainly about him and the Adams family and it's sort of more in the background about him and, and, and yeah, thing. So there you go. And then you've got Cousin It, but he parts his hair and it's Pennywise underneath. It's the ultimate crossover. So that's my only thing uh, about The Thing. And also about the thing, I, you know, not to torpedo that, because that's great. I would do a sequel, but I have to say right up front, Your Honour, that I would never answer the question. I wouldn't continue. But, well, you know, the, the, the point of the ambiguity at the end of the thing, I think, is the ambiguity. So you could write, it's Kurt Russell, or it's the other guy, or it's both of them, or it's neither of them, or there's another dog. But I think when you answer that question, it loses something. So it's better that it's, you know, ambiguous, that ending. So I would do something else. I know they made a prequel, I think, with What's the Face from What's It? Um, and they've done other things, I'm sure. And of course, it's based on the Howard Hawks. Um, yeah, the thing from Another World, Outer Space, that one. So um, that's a great suggestion. But I have to say that up front, I don't want any misgivings that I wouldn't ever continue that particular story. In terms of The I Rock, yeah, I love yeah. it. The Rock uh, is a fantastic suggestion. I bloody, I'm all over that. Yeah, and I let agree. me say I right now, this one. Um, by a lovely coincidence, well, two lovely coincidences, um, but the first one essentially is I have been recently in the midst of an act quite accidental, to begin with, a totally accidental Nicolas Cage season uh, a few weeks ago. We watched being John Malkovich and then you know and then adaptation, which is a fantastic double bill. And so we had that. We've seen other Nicholas Cages and we watched The Rock like a you know, maybe three years ago. So we you know, got the rock over there on DVD. So anyway, it's like that's nice. And then we saw Peggy Sue got married, and then we saw Moonstruck, and I had never seen Moonstruck, but it was nice. And by coincidence, it was set at Christmas as well. And so it started getting me, it's like a the first of my Christmas, it started the snowball rolling. <laughs> so in terms of all of that, um, we did those Nicolas Cages, but we also did, again, before we realised we were doing a Nicolas Cage season, we were doing Con Air on a Friday night. It was the first time I had seen it for about at least 20 years. I've always had my issues with it. It's never been quite as good as I always wanted it to be, because that first trailer when that came out was so good. I was really up for it. But it's, it's something else, it's Con Air. And so I watched that, watched, um, oh, have you heard of The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent? Yeah. Did you see it? Have I you seen it? Would you see it? No. no, I would. I'd love to see it. Yeah, is it it's fun? It's great fun. It's probably a really, really good three. Um, it's great fun. And Cage is great. And it, maybe it's even a four. Um, 
I don't know. It's not perfect, but it's it's really, really lovely. And at this point, we were obviously doing a Nicolas Cage season, so we did uh, Bad Lieutenant, Port of Cool, New Orleans, which I haven't seen since the cinema. And you know, you got your extra Herzog madness with your Cage madness, so that was fantastic. Um, so, so yeah, so this this rock situation has come at just the right time. It's amazing oh, time. That's, so, great. that's great. I can't wait to hear what you've done with the ship. I cannot wait. But we'll get to all well, of that, obviously. Yes, absolutely. And listen, before we get to it, before we even debrief, we'll have a little pre-brief around our relationship to the rock. We do have another little correspondence that's come through in the last Fantastic. week that I thought I'd share with you as well. So we've had a message from Shirley and Cranley, whose favourite bond is more. And her question, comment, and request is suck a goat. So there you go. That's that's lovely. Shirley from Cranley, if I may suggest one horn or two, maybe two <laughs> for the lady. So that's lovely. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I'm waiting for suck a goat too. And I'll tell you something else, Jimbo. In terms of Nicolas Cage, I did want to ask you, just before I forget about Moonstruck, um, have you seen Moonstruck? Oh, I'd only seen the BBC advert. I, reckon. I, I have seen it. I think I saw it with my mum as a kid and I don't remember it really. It's what? a real Frankie and Johnny wannabe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it, 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 it is. I haven't seen it in a long time, man. Is it good? Is it worth it? It is good. It was the first time I had seen it. I thought the ending could have been better. I think the ending could have been bigger. They set up all these different storylines and at the end, there was a big coming together of lots of storylines, but there were lots of storylines left kind of un, not unresolved because they by their nature were just sort of almost been against. But you could have put it all in and brought it all together for this massive blowout in the kitchen at the end. Why not go all out? So that was my only problem with Jewison choice. But otherwise, I really like it. I love you. <laughs> Snap out of it. Classic. Oh, I forgot about that. Right? Hey, look, I know I speak on behalf of the rec the listeners when I say if you're giving uh, Moonstruck as a recommendation, it's a hell of a good share, Sheppy. It's a hell of a good share. Um, <laughs> how do we recover from that? That's a, that's a, that's a keeper. <laughs> All right. So, well, you see the rock at the cinema. Let's bring this 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 juggernaut back on track. That's, uh... Now I always figured. Yes, I did see the rock at the cinema, and I'll do you one better. I was sitting at home one day, and I was reading. I assume Empire might have been flicks, but I think it was Empire, and it said. And so I'm assuming. What year was the rock? By the way, do we know? Yeah, ninety six. Ninety six. Okay, good stuff. So ninety six. So I guess this was there for sort of probably a year. So ninety five. I'm reading Empire, and it says. Now filming Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery and Ed Harris in this film set at Alcatraz, action film, The Rock, director of Bad Boys. And I was like, I like Bad Boys. I like all of that. Bring it on. That's great. So I remember my first hearing, as it were, of The Rock's existence. And then sure enough, a year later, went to see it, Guildford Cinema, up the high street, on top of the hill. And I really liked it uh, very much. Very, very much. That was a good summer, 96. That was Independence Day. And I guess Mission Impossible uh, and The Rock and Twister. I don't actually like Twister, but it was still a good summer for all of that. I don't really like anything. But hooray. So what a summer. And The Rock was great. Um, and yes, I saw it with some people. I don't know the specifics. I thought Bryant was one of them. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure Dr. Mike. What about you? 
I saw it on Netflix too, Sheppy. Yeah, for, it must have been for both of us actually. But I have it all in this bubble of absolute like happiness of you know end of A levels, um, you know whole life ahead of us sort of thing. What <laughs> next? Uh, Euro '96, England are like getting to the semi-finals. It's a big no. joyous thing. T-shirts out again. T-shirts out again. And uh, yeah, so I just. Um, yeah, it was just a wondrous time to be alive. I can't remember who I watched it with. It was in Eastbourne. I remember that much I watched it, but it was just wicked. And, you know, depending on your classification and, you know, in terms of just exclusively classified as an action movie, it may be at the very top for me. If you sort of say you've got action plus Bond or action plus Christmas movie for Die Hard or whatnot, like, I really love this film. Like, just love it. It's got a very special place in my heart. I, yeah, it's. Where uh, did you see it? Which which cinema? Oh, it, like, the, I can't remember what it was called now, but I think it was like a Curzon or something in Eastbourne High Street. Okay. So, um, yeah. Nice. And who did you see it with? I don't know, Sheppy. I don't know. That's dark. It might have been my chum Max, to be honest, uh, from Eastbourne, but I don't know. That's who I remember it. But I. No. So you it. loved it straight off. Had you seen Bad Boys? No, I hadn't actually. I was rock first. Yeah. Mm, yeah. yeah. I saw Bad Boys at the Flickers and I liked it very much. Yeah, yeah, very much, a bit too much probably, because I, I think that's why I grew my goatee. And so that, that so I was well up to it. So I, I dug my bay and this was before, but and the rock is my favourite bay. I, I like Bad Boys. And I've got, yeah, I'll say that. There's a bit of a drop off after that. I've got time for a lot of bay. I do like most of his style. And I like that he's not afraid of a bit of the old ultraviolence, but he is messy. Um, but The Rock, he's just about holding it together, just sort of, almost, not quite, but just enough. Um, so it's it's not you know, just a clusterfuck. It is a bit of a clusterfuck, but it just, you know, and it's got Ed Harris being an amazing villain who isn't really a villain. He's the antagonist, but he's not the villain. But then they, and he's got a really good point, but also, and he's very charismatic because he's Ed Harris being cool. But on the other hand, you're still given to Tony Todd and that little cunt, and they're so horrible, it's like, okay, good. And all the other people are actually really horrible, apart from David Morse. So that's that's helpful. So you, when, when they all get fucked up, it's very satisfying. I love it. I, I agree, Shep. It's one of those ones which catches you by surprise. If it's been a while since you've seen it, you forget sort of actually how justifiable the mission is, if you know what I mean, from, from Ed Harris's point of view, and how much yeah. he into it. I think it even, does it start with him? It is a grave. And his wife's grave, because he couldn't yeah. act on it until she was dead. And yeah. now she was dead. It's like, I waited so long for this. Um, yeah, no, he's got a great point. I don't know if it justifies holding people hostage and threatening people, but it is a, he has a very, very valid point. He's just, he is just and right in his cause and intent. Um, and so, that's right, but, he, but he, he does have Tony Todd and he probably should have screened his men a bit more, but what can you do? He was blinded by his own patriotism. So, or patriotism, so, but he is great. Cage is amazing, Connery's amazing. Cage and Con Connery have amazing chemistry. Absolutely nice. fantastic. Yeah, it is one of the great quotable chemistry partnerships, isn't it? It's certainly the last 40. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. I'm actually really sad they didn't do a sequel to it, to be honest. Yeah, right, yeah. Well, let me say this first, just about Cage and Connery are amazing. I did listen to the rock commentary once, and Cage does a track on that, and it's very good. 
Connery didn't want to do his own stunts, but Cage was up for it. And so Connery did it, did stuff like being underwater and the fire going over the top. Connery was not up for that. And I think they only had one take because he's definitely got a bogey thumbs up and, you know, no one wanted to tell him. So he's just forever got Connery bogey when he comes up after the final. But that's all right. That's okay. He's allowed we've all had a, a bogey every now and again when you come up from underwater. So hooray for that. Yes. Hooray, bogeys. <laughs> One of my biggest pet peeves of the whole original rock movie was just how he actually got out of his cell. Like, do you know what I mean? With the sort of the, <laughs> the tying of the sheets and the hoopla is really late after all. You don't like that? No, I don't no. like it. <laughs> I, I've always quite liked that. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's great. I can dig it. I'm all for it. I'll take pleasure in gunning you, boy. I, uh, I've, I've gone through the gamut of different quotes I've loved the most in this from, you know, you, you just fucked up your car, it's not mine, to, you know, winners go home and fuck the prom queen, Carla was the prom queen. But I think I, I land these days, Sheppy, just in Sean Connery's line reading of a very simple thing. Now I'm going to, I can't, I'm paraphrasing what Nicholas Cage says, but it's right at the beginning when they're interrogating uh, Mason and Cage says, because he's clearly a bit nervous around him, like, you know, I'm I'm standing good speed. I'm I'm with the FBI, you know, like, but it's just the way Connery says to him, but of course you are. Like that. I, love, I just yeah. love the way he does it. It's sort of patronizing and endearing and happy and it just makes me really happy. That the way. dialogue, Connery, one of Connery's you know, contract clauses as one of the at least executive producers, and you know, he's Connery, so he had a lot of clout. He got a script on it, as he often did by the people who did Porridge, amongst other things, the famous writing duo, but I don't want to get it wrong, so I'm not going to say, the thingy thingy and meow face, meow face. And um, they did all of that, and, you know, Godspeed, Godspeed, you know, and all of that. Um, it's good. There's, there is a very nice zingy quality to all of their banter and all of Connery's stuff. Connery's very good in it. And there is an argument that he's like James Bond, who's captured in 1963, so or even 62, so it's proper Dr. Noe. Yeah, and it's like that Connery was caught and he's been a prisoner and he's called John Mason, but it's basically, that's just the name he gave and it is an alternative universe. He beat Dr. No, he went and stole the shit, he got caught, and now it's 30 years later and he's stick and skate. And you, you could, you know, and that, that's fine. That's good fun. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I, like, um, I, I like, like all of that. Good fun. I love it. Yeah. Um, I, so, so I will say this: there was talk of them doing a sequel. Um, do you have you heard about this? This was oh, this was. It was going to be what late was then apparently became Enemy of the State, which is oh. the Will Smith, Gene Hackman you know, thing, and that's all well and good, and it's Tony Scott and all of that. It's got a great cast. But so what it was originally going to be was basically the shady government men in black people in vans and and things were after stanley and carla and um and and it's that enemy of the same thing all their credit cards are wiped all the you know surveillance cameras everywhere and like tracking them and all the men in black types are running after them and they have to turn to john mason to help them and that that's mm -hmm. the basic setup um and so obviously it didn't happen and it became state but that's interesting nice oh, i like that i'd love to see i would have loved to see i know this is budging and butchering a bit but you know will smith and sean connery would be good energy combo as well to be honest yeah yeah, yeah. nice because actually 
you could you could write that with they turn to Connery to help them, but it could also be that Connery, that John Mason, really it turns into a bit of a Gene Hackman, very paranoid and you know in hiding. You know what I mean? Like you know. I well, it's like you know, Gene Hackman. You could say is like a weird alternate universe of his character from the conversation, and so it's like he's the guy from the conversation. Connery is another version of James Bond. Nicolas Cage turns out to be the dude from Wild at Heart. It's crazy. <laughs> Um, so that's right um in i'm just trying to think of like in terms of the general rock i don't want to forget anything i do like the action i should say and i said this uh, in a previous podcast totally by chance but in this alternative universe situation where we find ourselves with the rock like labyrinth my only problem with the rock is they don't spend that much time on the rock doing stuff in the rock they're either bezing around San Francisco or they're in the Molaram's back, backyard in Temple of Doom in the minecart. And then they're in the morgue and they're in the prison bit, but that's great. And they have the gunfight when Ed Harris gets shot up and that counts and that's all great. And there's a bit of, you know, kind of with the rockets and, and all of that, very dirty Harry too, up in the tower. So that's fine. But that's really it. And that's like maybe altogether about 20 minutes at most, I would say. And then it's like, well, it's like the labyrinth. There's not that much actually where she's wandering around the labyrinth, really, when you come to it. Um, so, so that is something I wanted to address. It is, of course, Michael Bay, so it's very, very, very macho and very unironic about it and very, you know, stylized, but also so heavily into his sort of patriotist flag waving. And it's like, oh, okay. But it's it looks lovely. The the filter, the Hans Zimmer score, which I always, when I sing it to myself as I hum my, my way along the high street, I'm singing the rock theme that then turns into the Crimson Tide theme that then turns into the Bad Boys theme. So that's what it is. So if I ever break out in anything, it might be any of those three on rotation. And it's very similar. The rock score is actually very similar to the um, Pirates of the Caribbean main sort of brass. Obviously, the Pirates one is more. But I like all of that as well. Um, so, but I did want to mention, yeah. And I like the chase in San Francisco. I like all of it. Um, I like everything that's in it, I like. It's just that, well, okay, I, I probably would sacrifice the car chase in San Francisco. I like the prison escape and all of that. And, well, I have your hand and, and that. Um, and getting his hair cut, although the, the barber, of course, is problematic these days. But nonetheless, I do like it, but I would sacrifice it for more pure rock. Oh, and I'll say one more thing that I don't like, just to be totally honest. All the way through, basically, once they get there, Connery, and every chance he gets, he's going, okay, fuck this shit, I'm going home. Like, we need your help, man. Go away. Oh, okay. And then 10 seconds later, oh, no, this time I'm definitely leaving. Fuck you. And then, oh, I'm saving your ass again, speed. And then it's like, okay, this time I'm off. Bloody, I'm leaving through. I've got my suitcases packed. I'm halfway out the door. The taxi's waiting to take me to the airport. I'm out of here. I'm helping you out again, speed. And it's like, do it once. And that's fine. At the beginning, when Michael B and his team get wiped out, fine. Absolutely do that scene then, which they do, and it's fine. After that, for fuck's sake, just get Connery. He's not leaving. We're the audience. We know he's not leaving. That would be rubbish. But so it's like, you know, just sort of... So, I, so that's the other thing that gets on my twick. 
about it. And everything else is great. And I'm not going to whitewash a thing. Good twix, Sheffy. Good twix. I'll just throw in a little sprinkle of, I think, they catch Nicolas Cage. You, you mentioned it at the top as well, but the really interesting moment in his career where he wins his Oscar for Las Vegas and then he spins off and does this Con Air and face off. Like, you know, like yes, what, what other best actors would do that, you know, like to sort of, mm. you know, lean into the action movie genre straight up doing three very very specific action films yeah very big very rectangular action films and playing different very different characters in each um two characters so that's nice yeah i know i wonder if he was already on this path because leaving las vegas i'm pretty sure he won the oscar for that at 95 so i'm sure he was already making the rock at that point yeah. So that's if they were literally filming and he turned up the morning after the Oscars, Connery would be like, I've got one of those, you're nothing special. That'd be great. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that. And I, I it would it would be irresponsible of me to um not mention the fact that I've been to Alcatraz, Sheppy. And oh, I'm so glad you mentioned it. I did actually Alcatraz. make a note of that. <laughs> In case you didn't mention it, I, I wanted to make happened to be on the same tour as William <laughs> Defoe. Come on. So ridiculous. Come Absolutely on. ridiculous. On... <laughs> it's so stupid. It's like if you went on a on a Hawaiian cruise or a luxury cruise and Ed Harris is there. Like, no, swap over, you fools. You're, you're all over the place. It's like, yeah, what an unprofessional. Amateur. Defoe. Wasn't <laughs> I in this movie? Just, what are you doing, you tourists? I love the fact that Willem Dafoe was a tourist at the same time as you. Right. Really nice, isn't it? It's happy. It was a couple of years after this as well, so that's nice too. Yeah, but um, he was, he seemed very pleasant. I think I tried, tried to angle a bump into him while I was listening to my little, you know, prison <laughs> tour. And uh, yeah, I think you might <laughs> if have... If you look to your right, you'll see James bumping into Willem Dafoe. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> that wasn't a very good Dafoe. But you know I mean? That was all right. I could see it. Uh, yeah, so there's that, all about that. Anyway, you keep listen. looking, you'll see Willem Dafoe throw the Englishman over the side. <laughs> yes. It's classic. That's nice. I also wanted to mention, and you said this quote earlier, the uh, it's not mine. You know what I'm talking about? You have a, an experience here. Pretty cool. I didn't know whether we should throw that in, but yeah. So we, oh, okay. Well, look, um, my friend Stu is, was very... Um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Pedantic, or you know, you you wouldn't. He was very, uh, <laughs> he was very funny about lending people videos and stuff because they might like, you know, upset the cover or make them a little bit, you know, um, I don't know, like you know. No one like, likes a tea ring on the back blurb. Exactly, perfectly put, Sheppy. And I think even one of my friends, Danny, had watched one of his videos and had nibbled the corner of one of the videos. <laughs> oh, that seems like something that could have been avoided. <laughs> well, this was uh, a shocker. I borrowed the rock off him, which was one of his pride and joys. I think it was a widescreen special VHS. And um, I remember being in my room watching it. And uh, and I had a video recorder um, that, uh, that chewed it up, basically. <laughs> um, and you know that old crinkle sound of all the thing going through? Oh, but the sound of dread. When you oh. hear that sound, you're like, oh, fuck. And I, I basically, my my flatmate at the time, Rue, like came to the doorway and goes, Jesus, Jimmy, you fucked up your rock video. 
and I stood up like Cage, and like the camera twirled around me, like you know, after the, the car getting totaled in San Fran, and just said, "It's not mine." <laughs> and it was. Uh, I mean, if that's not at least an advert break in your life when it's shown on ITV, I don't know what is, because that's that's a that's a scene closer. That's good <laughs> stuff, man. I, that's probably the best thing that's ever happened to you. So good for you. <laughs> And luckily, <laughs> you and I are still speaking, just in case you're worried. Listening. Oh, yeah. Um, well, just because you swapped it out for your copy of Enemy in the State. Yeah. It's the perfect crime. Now, Sheppy, quickly, do you have a trailer moment? Um, I don't really um, I sort of do. I, I wrote one, and I wrote it as, like, in the script, it says trailer moment. So I think I'm going to leave it if that's okay. Okay. Yeah. Only really because I don't have it to hand, and I can't be bothered to scroll and find it. No worries. Well, I'll just say this isn't really a trailer moment either then, but I just wanted to say, like, I had in mind at some point, because she's going to be a bit more of a key character in mine, um, that, that just there's an opportunity with quite a nice little um, Sean Connery line that he says to his daughter to just be a voiceover over the top of elements of what's going to go on in, in my pitch in a bit, but just to hear Sean Connery's voice saying, Jade, I'm not an evil man. If you can believe that, then it's a start like that. And then, then it would be like, kind of, you know. Oh, that's good stuff, man. Stuff, but yeah. Claire Filani, who yes. was in Press Gang. Was she? Or was that Gabriel Anwar? I'm, I, maybe I'm going to get confused with Gabriel Anwar, but she was in shit, man. She was Filani in was shit, in it. She went meet Joe Black, I think. Yeah, she was. Yes, she was and all that. What a career. Wow. Um, that's lovely. There were some things, before we get to it, there were a couple of things. I mentioned Michael B.N., I like that he's in it. Michael mm. Bien was someone who was always like a really strong supporting guy. And also the le he was like a leading man. I saw a bunch of leading men, you know, Michael Bien films where he's like with Patsy Kensish and like fucking people up. And, but, you know, proper Van Damme, B-movie star lead. So he never quite, you know, obviously just made it, you know, but he, good for him, good on Michael Bien. In any case, I like the fact that in all of these films, Michael Bien will be the hero of The Rock. But because you've got Connery and Cage in that universe, it means he has to die. So if only they were there, that character would have been the hero of that story. But yeah. he has to die. And it's Michael Bien. So it's like, nice. Yeah, good. He's, he's recognisable and expendable. It's perfect casting. Spoiler, but it's like executive decision uh, with Seagal. Uh, and he sets up, he dies and leaves the person. Kurt Russell is a bit of a standard good speed in decision and it's very similar to that so so that's nice i know exactly the vibe you're going for there Sheppy. i love it i love the the expendability based on star power is that's a very interesting little imagine living your life thing. like that. that's a black mirror story right there yeah jesus <laughs> yeah man i, I want to say um one more thing um that i just wanted to mention is i saw the rock many times starting from the cinema and then on video, which I did not get eaten, and on DVD and so on. And it's never really gone away for me. Um, but one time I saw it, it was in Argentina with a man called Matt, who I became friends with. And he was from San Francisco. I think he was just on telly. And we were just like watching it. And it was nice watching a film, which, you know, where San Francisco is such a prominent part of the film. It's a real character. Um, and so watching it with him was nice because, of course, he was traveling deep into his travels as well. So, you know, I think it was nice for him to be like, hey, there's a rocket heading for my house. So that's nice. 
nice <laughs> i find that bit amazing i remember getting such shivers like with the stakes and with the flares and with the rockets going and like you know good speakers it was, oh, it's such so well executed when you want michael bay across it like, yes oh, it worked and i remember thinking in my being wrapped up in the moment at the time thinking fuck did they just kill nicholas cage just for a second i was i was in the moment um and it's jim caviezel shooting him with the rocket uh, oh my god i already fired so there you go that's so cool it's so yeah. good it's giving me yeah, a bit like, of rethinking about good it stuff. Uh, and the music all of it is so well shot so good um yeah, no, fair play. Like I say, it's my favourite bay. That's nice. Me too. By by actually not at distance, because I really like bad boys as well, to be honest. But yeah. yeah. Then it like you say it's my it's my bay of digs. Wow. Uh, I because I dig him, you see. Um yeah, I like bad boys very much. I've got time for bad boys too, but you know, Jesus, you have to really it's a bit of a slog. Um but but yes, the rock. And I, I've actually, I, I, I haven't seen it since the cinema, but I saw Pain and Gain, and it's it's oh, all yeah. right. Yeah. But um, it's it's personally very silent. So that's... He's a very fascinating counterpoint to uh, Cameron, right, Babe? Because he has his avatar in the Transformers, if you want to say it. Like, you know, he's yeah. sort of like jesus get it out of your system and come back to the the good stuff already you know right. and then but he did it and, and has sort of rolled those out, out pretty quickly i guess and is now back with ambulance and that sort of stuff and i quite enjoyed ambulance by the way it's oh, got good. you know so that's, that's quite nice but um but yeah so i just i think he's um well you know we know he's got chops chef he's got chops by the way remind me to tell you i watched life with martin lawrence and eddie murphy uh at the oh week. yeah have you ever seen it before? <laughs> no, no, I haven't. I've always been curious, actually. Yeah, whole other chapter. It's very, uh, it's all over the place. It's doesn't know whether it's a comedy or a drama, but Murphy's great and Lawrence is great, and that's really nice and happy. And yeah, anyway, so just a little. That's great. Oh, I love all of that. That's very happy. <laughs> oh well, yeah, brilliant. Because yeah, I keep almost watching it. It is on Netflix. I keep almost going there right now. All right. I think I've said everything for the moment that I can think of to say about the rock. Um, I, so if you're happy, I'm, I'd love I'm to hear your pitch. Yeah, I think uh, I've got a couple of other things to say, but I'm going to say them as I pitch. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, yeah, because there's one person we haven't really talked about <laughs> who I came to love after the movie, if you like, but then well, actually I'll say it now, like, but then realised he was in his peak as well, for what it's worth almost, because John Spencer's in it as well as uh, director Womack. And um, he is a very special person in this house, Sheppy, because he's basically my favourite character on the West Wing as well. As Leo. Oh. And um, so that's really happy, you know, to go back and watch The Rock now. And it's Leo being a bit of a, a sub-villain as well. It's really right. nice. Yeah, that's cool. Oh, that's nice because I've never seen the West Wing, so he's only ever. I've seen him in a lot of other things, but he's always Womack for. That that's going to be such a treat for you, Chef. You already get to the West Wing. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah, totally. I wanted to ask, did you rewatch The Rock for this? No, I didn't, man. Have you? No, I, I have to say, I was going to watch it. I, I think I told you I was going to watch it, and it was like so, so perfect. But the thing is, I am very familiar with The Rock, and we were going, we were still going to either watch that or face off uh last friday the martyrs have uh, been a bit ill so um there's no point if you can't drink wine so um so we watched with mel and i instead um so that's nice so we will but but so no we didn't we watched the rock but i i, I don't need to really i've seen it no. so many times 
I needed to just check a couple of things, but really, again, same. I could, I couldn't, not quite verbatim, but I know it pretty bloody well. Yeah. So. Spoilers. If I was gonna rewatch anything, it wasn't Rock, and I'll, that's all I'm saying for now. Ooh, okay, crikey. Um, all right. Well, look. Let's. I'll, I'll. I'll. I'll spin through this to get to the the good stuff, Sheppy. So, um, right. So this is no, the... no, 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 no. I can't accept it. No, don't no, spin just through this. Listen, no, listen. Come on, you know how this is going to go. It's going to start. I can't well. stand it. It's going to start well. Stop There's that. some fun little bits. <laughs> okay, right, that's it. Sounds yeah. like Bay to me. Hey, so directed by Michael Bay, uh, two thousand. Don't care what we're pushing out or pushing in or whatever there, but the Michael Bay two thousand. Um, this is called. I don't like that birth analogy. All I can see now is Michael Bay giving birth to the hideous rock baby and then going back in and then coming out again and then being sucked back in. It's disgusting. Oh, and then an Optimus Prime for good measure. Okay. Well, <laughs> right. This he is... an erection. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's such a good joke. I don't even want to think about it. Okay, anyway, listen. This I see as being uh, the the title of this film is called The Rock of Gibraltar, Sheppy, and I see it as being the rock font with a little of Gibraltar underneath it. So, um, but that's where we're going. We're we're off to Gibraltar. So, um, cast. Is, are we going to see like 002 fall off a mountain? <laughs> I've, I'm starting to get a hunch that you you've lent into the Bondian isms a bit, but that, that makes me happy if you have. But we'll see, we'll see. Anyway, look, um, I've gone. Uh, so the cast is reasonably lean. Uh, we've got Sean Connery back as Mason, Nicholas Cage, Goodspeed, John Spencer as FBI Director Womack, Claire Fulani back as Jade, um, and then uh, I've got here just two of the extreme characters so sub in your other two um you know lackeys uh i meant to say as well you've got bloody uh dr cox in the first one as well oh yeah of course oh well. yeah he's good at yeah he's good at being uber testosterone as well isn't he but anyway and um, here we've got vin diesel and stephen graham um as our oh, wow. two uh, cats i was just thinking who who's peaking at this point stephen graham's kind of in his snatch period um, right. Diesel is just coming into like you know, um, yeah. about to get into Triple X, maybe that kind of thing. Yeah, Triple X, I think, was two thousand six. It's a good time to catch Diesel, I think, as well. Um, so yeah. I think, um, <clears throat> and and to be honest with Sheppy, the shape of this is basically similar to the original, with probably a little bit more time in the Rock of Gibraltar, if that makes sense. So um, rather than San Francesco or whatever like you say, so. We start again, similarly to the first one, break into some form of military compound version two. I've put, I've just put a few explosions and a bit of Bayhem. Um, escape. <laughs> There's then a sort of an escape with this sort of crew of um, extreme environmentalists, I'm calling them, um, with a ton of explosives and a very special MacGuffin-y type detonator that specifically is designed to send seismic shocks through the earth. God knows whether that's scientifically possible or is anyway. And and the the explosives themselves are specifically high impact that the um the, the military's been working on. And um and anyway, like the we, we focus, we zero in on two of the guys, which is Diesel and Graham. And I'm not giving them names just so it's easy to identify. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. And Diesel wants to, you know, to to make sure that they maybe skim off the top or a bit more. He's he's the rogue of the two. And um and basically just establishes that Graham says to Diesel, you know, did he clear it with Uriel? And um and Vin Diesel's like, screw Uriel like that. And so Uriel basically is in in um you know uh Greek legend terms, the archangel of north and of earth, basically. And so it's sort of um seen as this sort of you know i guess a, a, something that represents the earth so uh, that's kind of what the the crew leaders called and and is not getting their hands dirty with this operation but basically the head of the outfit um and um and and basically their agenda here Sheppy, when we get to it is going to mimic the one of ed harris which is to say it has justification and in this bayhem there's been explosions and bits and bobs or whatever, you know, but no one's dead. You know what I mean? Similar to the first one as well, which was just quite nice. So, you know, they're not killing um, the soldiers that they're stealing off, you know, so it's very precision executed. Anyway, after this sort of little pre-title, we've got Womack playing golf with an FBI buddy and um, and then uh, a, a, an FBI junior is driving a buggy through the resort, um, tosses it aside at one point and sprints across the course basically to give uh, Womack intel on this this compound break-in. Now, this whole scene, Sheppy, this moment is, of course, shot far cooler than it needs to be. You know, I was saying, up here, maybe it's an early tea or a sunrise, and, you know, so it just, it looks, da-da-da, da-da-da, it's all that super cinematic. <laughs> but, you know, actually, with the news, like, Womack kind of brushes off this particular division and is like, what, the guys with the sticks of dynamite? The guy's gonna handle it. I'll be in in a couple of hours, you know. So anyway, then he just strikes his ball, like being very complacent about the whole thing. With the strike of the ball, we jump cut to Stanley Goodspeed, and um, he's at a big conference. Um, you know, it says about a thousand people in the hall, and he's listening to a presentation, um, and on the environment by none other than Jade Mason, played by Claire Paul, Claire Polani, and um, mm -hmm. she's nailing her presentation with some hard hitting home truths and Cage being the scientist, pipes up with a question at the end of her prezzo. And I don't even know what he asked. He's like, had you considered, you know, and her answer yeah, is perfect. Yeah, pure. And, uh, and she just absolutely knocks it back. And it offers Cage, good speed, a new perspective, and the audience, ourselves, and the room, a tingle of chemistry between the two of them. Now, Sheppy, I need to put a pin in here. This is going to be the bit, I'm going to come back to you. This is going to be the bit that you might not forgive me for. Okay, so I've had <laughs> massive liberty. I think part of the reason the missiles work and everything is you believe in Goodspeed and Carla. They're a really fun, cool relationship and a cool couple. Yeah. Um, I'm really sorry, but they're not <laughs> together anymore in my secret. Wow. Well, it I, happens. I made an executive decision that I need when Connery and Cage get back together there to be a free son and a danger and an edge again to their chemistry because you can't have them just run for me. I don't want to right. run around as buddies. So we right. want them to have that little. So right. I actually, <laughs> yeah, so I've, I've made it a cool letter yeah. for a reason that will be very clear very soon. So, um, right. <laughs> so post uh, presentation, uh, Goodspeed approaches Jade over the canapes and coffee. And Jade says, "Do I do I know you? You know." And Kate says, "We met once. I worked with your father." And uh, she's like, "Oh," and, uh, and you know, cuts him off kind of thing because of the father. And, uh, and Cage says, um, "Maybe this could be a voiceover in the trailer too." But he goes, "When I met you, your father, I said to you, your father was helping us out of a dangerous situation. 
he did he saved my life and basically cage just charms his way over that and and the the the, the good speed and jade coffee turns into a drink you know i'd really like to hear about this ex-scientific mm. thingamajig sometime i can um, so see it uh, it turns into a semi-date turns into them laughing bonding over science and led zeppelin and sleeping together i put and um, oh no, I've written it in words. I forgot to say it to you, but Carla's not in this. It's the cheeky liberty I'm taking. Need him and Sean to have that special energy again. Um, okay, so the morning after, uh, let's let's imagine some bay lens flary sort of sunrisey again type visuals as Jade's dressing um, in the hotel room and Goodspeed's in bed, and um, she says, "Stanley, that's the best night I've had in a lot of nights, but I have to go. I'm going to be travelling for a while, but I'll call you when I get back." Um, and then we have uh, cut back to Womack in his office, chatting to a couple of FBI uh, stooges. Um, this is, <laughs> I don't know why I put this, but it's the Bay version of Anchorman with their Bon Hamidi. Like, you know, he's just having a nice time. Um, Womack is pretty much, you know, he's got, he's got uh, tense at this point. Um, but the golf buggy lacking dude knocks on the door. Womack happens to be standing by it, so he opens it. And says, hey, to his buddies, he goes, hey, it's Wiley Coyote here. And uh, he goes, I'm not interested. Let's the door slam in the kid's face. But in the meantime, one of his buds has picked up the phone and we get one of those Zoom bursts into his face. He goes, sir, the guys who've stolen the stuff <laughs> have taken a position the whole time. <laughs> and he just says, sir, it's Uriel. Like that. And well, mate reopens his door and says, talk to me. Right, <laughs> to the kid. <laughs> we, uh, and then we cut between and... Um, Uriel's troops in Gibraltar, um, which is really again, Uriel is not visible at this point still. And um, we have Vin and Stephen laying um, bombs in various tunnels of the Rock of Gibraltar, and we get a bit of a briefing on it, Shepherd. And um, I didn't know all this, but it's interesting stuff. So I'm going to give you almost a straight wiki um, on this particular spot. So um, Rock of Gibraltar sits on the Azores Gibraltar Transform Fault. And it's a fault zone, fracture zone, major seismic zone in the eastern Atlantic Ocean between the Azores and the Strait of Gibraltar. And quite interesting. So lots of plates overlapping in one spot, which is nice. Um, and the tunnels specifically in Gibraltar are constructed over the course of nearly 200 years. And I've put here principally by the best British Army. <laughs> Not that, but anyway, um, so it has about 34 miles of tunnels, um, which is pretty mad. And they were used for the military and house guns and all sorts of stuff. Um, and um, yeah, and it's just got loads of reservoirs and water supplies. So lots of opportunities for cool action scenes and moments and tunnel shenanigans. And um, so, yeah, there we go. Happy. And lots of ammunition knocking around as well. Um, and then we get like our sort of anonymized terrorist voice, which is Uriel, but voice disguised, etc., saying the United States has... 24 hours to commit to a, a reduction in global emissions and if they won't look after the planet then they'll bring forward the planet's collapse you know and um and then Womack is like obviously suddenly sprung to full attention he's like give me x and y I haven't put the names down and he goes and who's our who's our best scientist for this and uh his stooge has been on the phone goes sir and Womack goes oh no 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 <laughs> good speed sir and he goes good god <laughs> basically we get um we, we cut back to Stanley Goodspeed. He's sitting in a business class seat on a plane. He's swapping his shoes for slippers, little plane slippers. Mm -hmm. And um, and he says to the waitress uh, on the, the estuary desk on the plane, like, do you have chamomile? Like that. And then he goes, 
and it's still kind of just really kind of focused on Stanley at this point. The camera's on him, and he's just like, God, you know, like kind of in, you know, a bit of a, in love, God, you know what I mean? Like, you know, but after the night he's had, and then it's kind of a, still on him, but kind of on Stanley's monologue. He's sort of speaking to the guy next to him, whatever. He's like, you know, after Carla, which was really a conscious uncoupling. Well, conscious for Carla, unconscious for me, mostly. Hence the chamomile, you know, because, you know, I didn't think I'd find someone so darn fast. I'm not doing a good case at all. But no, you, know, you are, actually. And then, <laughs> and then after he said all that, he just he big, big, long monologue. And he goes, so what's your story? Or that he turns and the camera cuts and it's just a kid in a little blazer, <laughs> airplane style, reading a comic. And <laughs> he opened his heart to this kid. And then the kid just sort of raises a comic to his face and covers it. Anyway, and, <laughs> and there's a bustling at the entrance to the plane. And um, a couple of like, you know, government people just goes, good speed. You're needed by that. And of course, Gibbs like, can I get the tea to go? So anyway. Um, we... I can see it all so clearly. <laughs> I can see his face. <laughs> we have um, tourists fleeing Gibraltar, what is clearly an escalated incident. We cut, cut to Gibraltar, the cable car to the rock is closed down. And, you know, units of government agency are assembling around it. As Uriel and the team are basically in the tunnels. And... Um, Aside from this action, but still in Gibraltar Centre, um, at a cafe, we see um, a man in a Panama supping an espresso, um, and it, it, we we turn around, and of course, it's John Mason. Um, back at Mission Con Control, Goodspeed is now with the FBI, um, and he's giving it the full briefing on what I told you already, the tsunami, the plate implications, etc. And then they get a little... Um, from someone else, you know, Bay always has loads of extras with very like, <laughs> uh, it's like, sir, we have an ID on Uriel, and Womax well, like, bring it up, and, uh, and they just say, it's Jade Mason, sir, and Womax well, like, Jade Mason, uh, and he says, what's her last whereabouts, and so they have a few like, CCTV scan pics, and then of course, with good speed there, standing there, they've got like, him and Jade canoodling at a hotel, and like that, and what like, <laughs> just goes, Jesus, good speed. So I think I've actually just glossed over the fact we've got quite a big twist there. You know, the, the antagonist, the Ed Harris, is is Jade Mason, uh, you know, his, yeah. his daughter. Um, yeah, then, no, <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. I got washed up in the whole James Bondy, you know, what do you think you're doing? Uh, <laughs> so that's, that's pretty pure. And you're right, that's a hell of a twist. Um, but then anyway, the, you know, Womack is obviously a little bit furious. He's like, good speed, anything you want to tell us? But the cage is like, she loves rubber plant and likes and snores like an angel, sir. Or that. And Womack shakes his head and he's, you're in the field again, good speed. Maybe you can talk to her and all this sort of stuff anyway. Like, you know, they write it better than that in the moment. But I know, and Cage just says, permission to change my shoes, sir. And we look down, he's still got his airplane slippers on. And um, and then, um, so good plea, good speed goes fighter jet to Gibraltar. So maybe we've got some nice little Roger Moore yeah. maker style cheek wobbles. <laughs> um, and we get like bits of the president with, you know, we will not counter terrorism and all this sort of stuff. So they're not going to yield the Americans. Um, and in Gibraltar, you know, it's full mini military camp, um, ready to enter the tunnels. And, and good speed sort of obviously on the peripheral of all of that stuff. Um, a little underprepared, he's armed, but um, but wandering a little aimlessly. 
And as he is in a more secluded spot, he's lynched by a mystery figure. Well, we don't even know. Oh, I don't need to leave too long into that. Of course, we know who the mystery figure is. He's like, oh, what are you doing? And, and Sean Curry is like, you know, same thing you are. We're both here for her. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Cage is obviously like overwhelmed and amazed to see uh, Mason again. And, and uh, Mason says, don't get cute with me. I've seen the pictures. What happened to Carla? And he goes, uh, John, it was a, a long conscious uncoupling. And he goes, I'll give you a consciousness. And he goes, there's a million women on the planet. And it had to be Jade. And uh, John says, I'd really appreciate your blessing on this. And, uh, and, John, and like I see Sean Connery's eyebrows getting higher. And he's loading his gun at this point. And he's like, John, I'd really appreciate your blessing on this. And the gun just clicks. And he goes, it's only been a night, but my stomach is like a washing machine jar like that. And it's like a double click and an eyebrow. It's <laughs> like, he might shoot you, you might not. And he's like, let's go. And, uh, and anyway, the plot, the little mini plot, I said that it didn't have the San friend. It kind of does. And um, there's a map to the tunnels in a museum that they need to steal. And of course, Sean's face can't be seen really, even though they do know that he's there, but he's obviously more of a target. So there's a little mini mission there where they have to, Big escapade set piece with good speed and you know don's civilian clothes gets out of what he's in goes to the museum and steals a tunnel map um it's just a little bit of mission impossible style tension i think rather than them being chased into that mission um and it's like it's going to help them find the optimal point that jade will have set her crew up in because there's miles of tunnels and times of the essence you know um and back at fbi good speed is suddenly assumed mia or kidnapped and um and they're, they're worried about him and thinking what's happened and then uh and then suddenly they get word that good speed has escaped a museum with a map and they've got some i put here like proto drones like kind of out there maybe they would they wouldn't really necessarily have a jag drones back in 20 2000 yeah. uh, maybe but maybe the fbi did anyway point is these these flying camera helicopters uh, capture uh good speed and mason on the roof of the museum and i can see connery facing down and glowering at the drone um but really glowering at womack who's watching it on the television device and it's like um and womack's like it's john mason i thought he was vaporized like that and, uh, and anyway the, i haven't actually done much with any of the the, the tunnels again sheppy but um I, I basically I've got the boys crawling through the tunnels, escapades, killing people, you know, maybe a moment where good speed gets a bit stuck and wedged in the tunnel. He's like, God, it's a bit tight here, John. He's like, you look like you've put on some pounds, good speed. Like that. Anyway, then there's um, and there's lots of, yeah, I've just put lots of awesome retunneled, different set pieces, you know, familiar iconography, but different and all that sort of stuff, you know, and fun action beats and all that sort of thing. And um I think um I think in the Jade side and with the team, we almost, I mean, I, I'd obviously be rewritten, but I just love the Ed Harris moment where he's like, we bluffed, they called it, you know, and essentially Jade aligns with that as well. You know, the, they get to the point of having to detonate this thing and set the faults going. And um, and she she basically is the one that is not prepared to do it. Um, and we have Stephen, uh, Graham and Vin Diesel going rogue at this point, you know, and still trying to set the reactor off. And I haven't gone into the, the weeds of how all that plays out, all the details of it. But the bottom line is we have this. The boys regroup with Jade. Um, she doesn't get killed like Ed Harris does. Um, Vin Diesel, I've put, is probably the, the, the more full-on one. 
of the two as we established at the beginning and but is ultimately hoisted by his own petard and somehow buried with a, a mini explosion in one of the tunnels i haven't even said who does that you know that's all fair game much more interested in the very end of this but we'll get to it in a minute. <laughs> and, and um and then um and we think there's a moment where it's you know we've got um the the, the boys uh mason and goodspeed and jade and we and they've they've basically got uh stephen graham there he, he sort of regrets all of his actions as well as we think he's going to turn good pulls out a gun goes for jade stanley takes the bullet um at the, and then mason shoot mason shoots him um and because you know stan has taken a bullet for john at the end finally there's that little moment with you know uh, mason saying to good speed you have my blessing like that and anyway at the end um they're walking out of the tunnels defeat you know they defeated the thing that is not going to go off and um and john says to to good speed sure you went to the church and uh and nicholas cage nods and uh Mason said, you sure about that? And uh, Goodspeed said, you were just doing your job, John, by that. And uh, Mason says, Wilmot doesn't see it that way. And, uh, and Jade says, Dad, did you kill JFK? Mm -hmm. and, um, and Mason says, no, Ruby, by that. So basically, John Mason was the one that shot uh, Ruby the next day um, after uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. No, sorry. Oswald, I meant to put Oswald, and I put Ruby had a brain fart. That's right, so he's Ruby. Yeah, so yeah, he he basically it wasn't really Ruby, it was John from somewhere else. Anyway, those two, right. and and um, <laughs> and anyway, the most important thing is that Goodspeed is like, what now, John? We're all wanted like that, and uh, and Mason's like, now we run like that, and the choppers are coming in for them because Womack is aware that uh, Mason is alive. Goodspeed is now an enemy of the state as well. And um, and and we basically finish it, like, teeing up for a rock three with the three of them on the run. And um, and, and we get, like, a, you know, a proper Michael Bay, da-da-da, da-da-da, choppers going for them, et cetera, and they are getting out of Gibraltar. And then we have our directed by Michael Bay, yada, yada. Wow. And then about maybe a minute into the credits, um, which we the, the vibe of them knows there might be a stinger coming. We get Womack uh, in a little stinger scene, just saying on his little you know mobile com, "Give me British intelligence." And then we get like you know the Bay version of M's office right. in the big Chesterfield chair, and a and a familiar voice says, "I understand." Oh, <laughs> I haven't even done the impression. Yes, well. He should have retired when he had the chance for that. And he puts the phone down and we spin around and it's Roger Moore sitting in the oh empty, <laughs> ready for the Rock 3 to chase Oh, my that. God. <laughs> Possibly. It's Moore versus player. Connery. It's Moore versus Connery. <laughs> oh, God, that's huge. I nearly put that in, Sheppy. I want to tell you, like, I nearly had that as, like, the third act. I was going to wrap up Gibraltar and then I was going to have them. They had to go back to San Francisco to get something from jade's place or a hiding right. place and then more was going to be invoked ready for act three you know when i text you and said i've yeah. got park mead for act three i had yeah. and there was a whole scene where it was like you know there was a speedboat chase through the bay that then obviously ended back at the rock the original rock and then it was more versus connery and i had all these lines around you know should have like, stayed retired and like you know it's the it's the quality not the quantity of missions and all this sort of stuff like you know this is absolutely brilliant this exists 
however it is, whether or not it's a third act and it's like the Abyss special edition, and you're like, oh my God, there's a whole extra bit, uh, which is like 40 minutes, or it, that's, that's a whole third act anyway, or it's The Rock 3. I think it deserves its own film, frankly. And I'm saying it's greenlit. It, in the, it, it exists. It exists. Um, that's amazing. Maybe you do that really annoying thing and call it The Rock 3, even though I've yeah. been really clever about Gibraltar. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a real Highlander three. It's a real. There's something else like that. Yeah, brilliant. They bring it on. A bit like Alien three, I suppose. Uh, yes, um, Jimmy, that was wonderful. The ending, Park Mead and all. Uh, I choose to accept that as a reality, and I love all of that. Of course, the whole Gibraltar thing is is great. It works so well. Um, I didn't know any of that. That's very very cool. Um, I love their chemistry again. You nailed it. You nailed Cage, as it were. I love that. Um, Cage is fantastic. Um, Connery is fantastic. The, the 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 Mason thing. I'm okay with it. I'm okay with the daughter Polani. Although you're going to have to explain what happened to the kids because she was pregnant, man. Yeah, so you can't. Too. You're right. Yeah, yeah she took the kid, or she lost the baby. It's really inappropriate really dark moment oh, there's god. a rape up there that sort of thing <laughs> <laughs> oh god yeah um yes you're right it's it's problematic it's problematic you can say you know oh carla and the kid are fine wasn't even mine and really oh. undermine the whole point that i love of the first film uh yeah yeah you could really go for it a little chinese baby popped up i knew something was up um <laughs> astonishing um Jimmy, I love it. That was great. I will say this. Um, I really, I think I sent you a message like not long after you sent this um, pitch. And I just, I instantly had this sort of idea. And I think I sent you a message saying, I've got an idea and it's really, really out there or something like that. And I did waver for a second. And I will say this film could exist. The first 30 to 40% of this film could totally exist then the rest of the film could could be... Well, let, let me put it this way. Tiny, tiny spoiler. This film of mine is basically consisting of about five heists. And so the, the rest of the film, like the next 60 or 70%, could theoretically be going to Fort Knox, or it does run the danger of being a bit of a national treasure. So anyway, it doesn't do that, and it does something else. But there, there is an option if the studio pressure gets too heavy. But I really just decided to go with it, follow my heart, and just really go off on one. Absolutely ridiculous. But I think I'm licensed to do so because of one really throwaway line in the film, which I will mention later. Um, and there's also um, a whole other thing about this film where um, I'll also get to, but, it, but it's about uh, an actor but I don't want to do any a major spoiler immediately, but that's, that's the general gist. So I'll just get to it. Now, again, it's, so this is uh, 98 or 99. It might not be possible to be 98. So let's, it's even, I'm probably going to say that. It depends. It's directed by Michael Bay. Um, and I was thinking maybe it's directed by someone else, but I honestly couldn't think of anyone. You know, these days you could say, you know, Zack Snyder, and he's got lots of Bay-ish isms. I think he calls his films better than Bay does. Bay just get out of control, but they're similar. But this is too early for Snyder. So I'm just thinking Bay, because it does have to be big and ridiculous. And he certainly does that very well. 
So I've got starring, you've got, um, oh, by the way, it's The Rock 2, or uh, it, AKA The Rocks. So there you are, Ooh. starring Nicolas Cage, Sean Connery, with, uh, now I've got Vanessa Marcel, who's Carla, Claire Finale, um, uh, as Jade, of course. Your boyfriend, John Spencer, Womack, you'll be pleased to hear. With, now I've even got Crispin Glover is my top choice, um, but I won't lie, he's very similar to the character from Charlie's Angels in my mind, that this film is before Charlie's Angels, it doesn't make sense, if it was after I could forgive it, I'm like, oh, this film is looking at Charlie's Angels, it sort of goes against my code a little bit, so I want it to be Crispin Glover, but if not, I will actually go for Eric Stoltz, and maybe I made that connection because of Back to the Future, but I could see, given the chance, like late 90s Eric Stoltz could sort of be this kind of white, very white, pale, creepy guy. So, so there you go. Um, and Richard Harris. So there you go. Uh, huge. Um, and so, so, all right, let's just get to it. It's about two years later. Stanley and Carla Goodspeed are on the run. So I have gone with a bit of an enemy of the state set up. Uh, with their baby, Ringo, in tow, uh, and also with their highly classified documents, they are uh, preparing to strike back. Um, so we have a pre-cred. The film starts with Stanley in a crowded city plaza with Carla observing from like a hidden location nearby, and they're on contact on cons, and Ringo is with her in like a papoose or something, or a baby chair. We see Carla in the background behind her, the surroundings are just like a plain wall that bit out of focus and she says into her mic you don't think the van is too obvious do you and we see like the part of the plaza and we see cage as you know speed is there and we see the, this van which is parked nearby and it's like this brown panel van with red is good exclamation mark printed on the side and stanley's like oh no it's perfect makes me want bread right now actually and kind of like focus stanley and uh that's so they're uh, they're readying for a trade-off with a journalist that they've been in contact with, and they're going to pass on all these state secrets stolen by Mason and finally be free of the burden. They've been on the run for, I'm going to say, between a year and two years. Um, so the journalist is shown, and he and Stanley clock each other across the crowded area. And it's, oh, I forgot to say, it's Anthony Michael Hall. So Carla's watching, Stanley is watching, the journo crosses the square towards him, Jerno and Stanley make eye contact and the Jerno smiles in greeting. Then Stanley sees something sort of uh, innocuous out the corner of his eye, turns and sees a man with a bunch of flowers walking nearby who turns his head, revealing like the, one of those spiral wires coming out of his ear. It's an ambush. Carla says, Stanley, and the Jerno freezes. Stanley turns and we see a tall, creepy looking man emerge. I'm gonna just go with the Crispin Glover thing. Nice. He's dressed in a black suit with slicked black back hair and his face is totally white. So this is Crispin Glover. I'm just going to call him Glover from now on. But it might be Eric Stoltz. He steps forward, producing a very slender, strange-looking chrome gun and points it, taking aim. Stanley reacts. Glover fires and the journo is hit in the chest. He maintains eye contact with Stanley as his shocked expression freezes and he goes down. He's dead. Anthony Michael Hall, bit of a Michael B.N., but one ladder rung down. So, yeah, he's out. Panic in the square. 
Glover tries to shoot Stanley, but the crowds are fleeing and he has no shot. Shoots anyway, narrowly avoiding uh, some extreme collateral damage. The plaza is suddenly flooded, swarmed by SWAT types. This seems to annoy Glover, who signals to two others dressed in black similar to him, but both are huge giant men. And they both produce two very large chrome guns. And again, I won't lie to you, these are kind of a, a dark, dark version of the men in black. And the guns that they've got are essentially like the, the Tommy Lee Jones guns, slightly smaller, but that's how I see it. Chrome guns and advance at Glover's uh, silent order. Stanley is legging it. Carlo is shouting directions into his ear. SWAT are all over the place. Um, and Glover's stooges give chase. All, um, but we see that these are two different groups because one of the massive stooges just like rams into like a SWAT guy, just swats him out of the way, as it were. Um, almost at the edge of the plaza, Stanley screeches to a halt as one of the other massive Glover stooges blocks his path you know, a little way away and raises his large, weird looking gun. Stanley stares and just for a second, there seems to be like a sort of a heat shimmer in front of the guy. Um, and Stanley's like, what the fuck? But he doesn't really swear to Stanley. So he's like, his expression is like, what the fuck? Um, then the guy points and aims, um, not at Stanley, but at the van. And we see Carla and the baby and Carla reacts with a, whoa, Stanley, this guy has a, and he fires. And there's like a mini rocket streaks out of the van, which explodes in a massive fireball. And Stanley stares a beat and then runs and he, and he pegs it and he's being pursued. There's an exciting chase. Then Stanley looks to be cornered when a drain cover opens up in front of him and he immediately drops in and the cover goes back into place and below in a storm drain, Stanley lands and turns to the figures huddled there and it's only bloody Carlo and Ringo and they've been down there all along and the van was a diversion and the family flee down the tunnel and Carla's like, Next time, Stanley, can we pick a diversion that isn't filled with quite so many yeast-based products? They'll be smelling that up at the hill all day. We turn out there in Washington, and Stanley's like, I told you, I like the smell of freshly baked bread. It's relaxing. And Carl's <laughs> like, it's not exactly freshly baked, Stanley, more like burnt to a crisp. Yeah, well, I like that smell too. And they, uh, the hit squad, um, Crispin's dudes, uh, no, actually, no, it's for SWAT. Um, find the, the storm drain, crowd around it, they blow it, drop, drop inside, find it empty, around the corner, next to an open manhole cover, inside a beaten up Volkswagen, the family speed away, leaving destruction and anarchy behind them, sirens blare as the police rush to the scene, a moment in the car, then Stanley says to Carla, okay, time for plan B, and the rocks comes up on the screen, black, <laughs> comes up, um, and so uh, we find out Stanley is, uh, was told by um, Paul Giorno that uh, releasing info like this, um, which you know, Mason stole, all these government secrets, uh, is in many ways playing into the government hands. No reputable news organization will touch it for fear of reprisals and the danger that it is false. And if they give it to a more commercial paper or try the foreign press, it will be instantly devalued and made all the more easy to dismiss by the US government. And the way to do this that uh, they are told is to actually place the info back where it came from at the heart of the government's information infrastructure. Therefore, the government can't deny it. Um, 
incorrupt officials, for there are some in the Pentagon and Congress, etc., will actively champion for the truth to come out all these years later, because it won't hurt them anyway, and it'll make them look like heroes, and it's the right thing to do. So to beat the government of their own game, the dark government, let's call it, Stanley must get this info into the center of the Pentagon, and from there it can be released to the public with zero deniability to those in power who strive for a cover-up. So with that in mind, uh, we are told that um, though Stanley and Carla know more than they're saying as well, there is something, Stanley, they've obviously looked at all the information on this microchip or microfilm, and there's more to, at play here, and it, which is hinted at between them, but more than it's revealed yet. So now, to do this, Stanley needs help from the best escape slash break-in artist he's ever met, the man who stole the plans in the first place, so he puts out word, contacts John Mason, um, Stanley finds him like through, there is like a pre-arranged emergency plan or Mason sent like a weird postcard at some point, just something, just in case, contingency plan, something like that. So Mason is getting to know his daughter and they're spending time in their ancestral home of Scotland out in the, in the Highlands. Um, so Stanley tracks him down and that whole scene was like totally covered over. Um, the government, as well as Glover and his men in black type, so after him and the info, and the solution of putting the info back into the infrastructure of the Pentagon, but Mason too suspects that there's more that Stanley isn't telling him. And also there's this major issue that renders Stanley and Carla's issues moot. Uh, and it's all been hinted at and so on. I wasn't sure exactly when to introduce this aspect. I wasn't sure it could even be at the beginning, but I think that it's hinted very strongly that the situation's bad, they, they have to get to a city. Um, and so let's say it's Glasgow and they're there and it's Mason and he said, I'll help you only so far, but I, you know, your whole plan is moot. And he keeps saying this and we're not sure why, because, and, and we see Glasgow's pretty dis, uh, deserted um, whilst they're there to do whatever it is they need to do. And it's pretty quick and it's all this is exposition and getting back to know each other and all of that whilst they're doing this. And so for whatever reason, the city's pretty empty and Mason and him are sort of doing their thing and they get what they need to do and it's basic information um, and, you know, Mason is, you know, maybe you've been living your own best life with Carla and the baby, but where you put this info is meaningless. It's just in case your head is so far up your ass, you missed it. The world's about to end, you don't. And just at that moment, all these police cars and, and shit turn up and surround them because they've been spotted in it. And all the cops get out and it's like, you know, Scotland Yard police guns and all that. And at that, pretty much at that moment, they are trapped. They are totally cornered. When out of the sky, we discover why the city's pretty empty and some meteorites just burst down through the atmosphere and collide with the buildings and explode. And this is where we discover, I mean, it's all in the advertising anyway, it's the same universe as Armageddon. Amazing. Uh, Amazing. And, and, and it's been happening for like a few weeks now with, with this sort of tom with meteor hits and strikes, but it's all kicking off. And the police cars get hit by these tiny, you know, the size of, you know, Volkswagens and, and tennis balls, they're coming down, blowing up the police cars. Now, I think I can do this because it's the same president in The Rock and Armageddon, and in both films, he's only called the president, and in both films, he gives the same speech. This is the hardest call I've ever had to make, but all the time he's making these hard calls. So <laughs> it is the same universe, and I've always thought of it as the same universe, and somewhere in Armageddon, however you do it, Stanley and everyone are in, in that world dealing with the situation. So in this case, the beaches come down and smashing it up, and that's how they make their escape. Amazing. Um, 
Holy <laughs> moly, I didn't see that coming at all, but that's amazing. And the president's pure there, and that's that's it. Uh, yeah, so that's the actor who I alluded to earlier, who is in both films and in this film uh, as the president. Nice. Um, and, uh, so, that, by the way, I don't think I'd have pulled the thread. Like, I just assumed you got the president back, but no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. So that's what I always, I always went with. Um, so they're escaping, and he's like. So there you go, Stanley. Spend the time with your family as I fully intend to do with mine. Doesn't give us two fucks about this microchip. This whole planet's a cinder. And enjoy the last days and months that we may have. And Stanley says, there's just one thing, though, Blanc. Maybe your analysis of the microfilm only got as far as the mutant alligators in the Parisian sewers, but there may just be some info here as to its source that could actually, oh, I don't know, stop the meteor and save the goddamn planet. And uh, there's like a, a pause, and Mason's like, really? And Stanley's like, yeah, and it's pure cage. And that's my trailer moment. Um, that is perfect, so, perfect, perfect, so, I'll go. <laughs> uh, so, and as they're leaving, uh, Mason's like, crocodiles in the Parisian sewers? And Stanley's like, oh, right there, John. I assume since you've gone to such lengths to steal the thing, I kind of figured you, you know, read the thing. I skimmed it, you skimmed it. I don't believe everything you read, Stanley. And sort of to himself, especially French crocodiles in the fucking sewers. So Mason and Goodspeed leave their respected families, quote unquote, in a safe place. Um, and, and we keep cutting back and forth, actually, to this tiny pub, which is a comic relief, in the middle of the deep Scottish countryside with Carla, Ringo the baby, and uh, Jade, um, who was, of course, with, with Connery and Mason there. Um, and also, of course, very colourful, stereotypical, from Michael Bay's perspective, Scottish locals having a great time and getting drunk um, with, with all of them. Uh, so Stanley and Mason now use the perfect and only opportunity they have for Stanley's plan. The world's attention is on the massive meteor that's heading towards Earth. The smaller rocks are causing worldwide chaos and panic, and the government is totally focused on this world-ending event. So during this crisis, and as, as a fresh shower of small rocks are heading towards the East Coast, Stanley and Mason use this as cover to break into the Pentagon. And the break-in is exciting, it's ingenious, and it's cool. Uh, Mason uses the tunnels built by Roosevelt in 41 during its construction to gain entry. Oh yes, oh yes, I can do this shit. I, I've done my wiki. Uh, they are being pursued by Glover and his weird death squad um, that's on good speed's tail, as well as everyone else. Uh, they are in the early stages of this, and we cut to a Washington suburban home. And inside, we see children, uh, graduation pictures, we see wedding snaps and nice classy furnishings. And then we see the owner, only bloody Womack, and he's on the phone to the president about this mysterious death squad, which we are first to believe he is behind. You know, we're sort of led to believe maybe that he's behind it. And then Womack hangs up from the president saying that whatever plan the pair have in motion, uh, they don't stand a chance. He hangs up, turns around and freezes. Glover is there. And again, we're momentarily meant to believe that he's working for Womack. Um, and it's the real uh, Robert Redford winter soldier moment. But this is soon proven otherwise. And Womack is like, Jesus, what did you think you were doing blowing the hell out of that plaza? Do you think the president would sanction this sort of action? And very quickly we see through Glover's creepy calm and Womack's increasingly nervous appearance that he is not the string puller, 
And Womack tells Glover that the most obvious course of action now, with the journo dead, is Stanley will try and get it into the Pentagon. He goes on, you think it's easy to cover up your actions with this sort of heat? When you first came to me, I never dreamed you'd take things this far, etc. He glances nervously into his garden where his wife is gardening. And Womack's like, so tell me where, what you came to say. Tell me and leave me and my family in peace. And uh, Glover says, well, very few lines in this film, but he says one of those lines now. And he says, peace is a state of mind, director. He takes out his slender chrome gun and he shoots Womack in the oh. head, killing him. I know, I'm so By sorry. Way, like just even the, the, the cliche of the wife gardening in the background is so <laughs> bayish. And like I totally see her like the the the, the rose that she's clipped like drops if mm -hmm. she discovers where we're exploding and the garden clouds <laughs> and the shears and like, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, low angle sun over the brim of her gardening hat. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um so Glover leaves uh Womack's dead, but at least the wife's okay. And, and now it, the Pentagon well, should die in a sequel as well. Sorry to interrupt you, Shabby. I'm just going to say should die in a sequel. I feel like it's got that kind of um, oh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 type energy to it. Right. It should be yeah. a corpse in the sequel, and for sure. Yeah, but I think That's it's a good decision. And you feel a bit sorry for him, I hope, you know, because he's he's you know, he's got all sorts of problems. But yeah, yeah, he, he didn't deserve that, I don't think. Maybe. I don't know, maybe he did. Um, so anyway, the Pentagon heist, it's very exciting. Um, Rocks are exploding around Washington, monuments are blowing up, and it's partially blind luck that Stanley and Mason are not hit as they navigate the tunnels, starting under the Washington Monument, which of course explodes, and leading to the center of the operations um, inside the Pentagon's innermost level, and they're bickering all the way. Um, all the while, Glover's death squad are getting closer, as well as SWAT government personnel, etc. Mason and Stanley reach the inner sanctum of the Pentagon to gain access to the vault, a massive subterranean area filled with weird fragments of hidden secrets, a bit like a cross between Mulder's office and the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, it's not that huge, it's like low, but it's massive and it's dusty and it's just loads of hidden secrets. Um, so Stanley inserts the microfilm into this huge black computer um, in the classic you know, 90s graphics come up on the screen. And um, it's a really old computer as well, like, you know, twirling things and moving bits and flashing knobs and stuff. And we see three separate other files come together. We see Stanley and Mason's stolen piece fitting with other similar file fragments forming a three-dimensional super file. And Mason's like, what the fuck's taking so long? Dump the info and let's scram. And Stanley's like, that's uh, not totally the plan, John. Like, what the fuck are you talking about? And Stanley takes a disk drive containing all of this and he uses the database to find a shelf um, which he's looking for, um, you know, like a sort of a story reference. And he quickly starts down looking through these big, like metallic, dusty old you know, shelves, searching through um, stuff, various things, maybe a few Easter eggs in there. And um, Mason's like, now what the fuck is this shit? And Stanley's like, won't take a minute, John, gotta grab something up of the road. And now the truth comes out and Stanley um, and Mason um, are confronted with some serious shit. Um, Stanley is highly reluctant to tell Mason everything as it's need to know. And mainly Mason wouldn't believe him anyway and he wouldn't have come if Stanley had told him the full story. Um, and Stanley finds what he's looking for and it's like a dusty old like case from the 50s and he opens it up and it contains some sort of weird, you know, kind of like a motherboard type thing, like, you know, weird tech. And it's a piece of jagged sort of circuit board, which um, Stanley stashes in a rucksack or something. 
Mason says, okay, you got your fucking gizmo. Now what? Can you get it to work for, for that? Or do you need me to blow a fucking Fort Knox as well? Um, I don't know if that's just like a Goldfinger reference. Yeah, or... okay. <laughs> uh, so Stanley says for the tech to work, it needs to be fitted together with the main machine from whence it came. And Mason's sighing is like, and where's that, Stanley? And Stanley's like, you're a fan of New Mexico, John. And Mason's like, desert, heat, dust, and tacos. No, I'm fucking not. So Stanley says, well, I don't suppose Roswell rings a bell. Mason, the only bells I can hear are from the sirens of the men in white coats coming to get your ass, you mad bastard. And Stanley just looks at him and says, you saw the info with your own eyes, John, a long time ago. And you see what I just took from here? And he waves the motherboard at him. Now, what does that look? Does that look normal to you? And Mason is, is resigned. He's like, alien shit. And Stanley's like, alien shit. And it's end of act one, basically. Um, now, I think I'm justified here because this is the thing. Uh, in the rock, Womack throws out this line. The, the, the Roswell come up, Area 51, the aliens, I think. It's there. Aliens exist in this world. I didn't come up with that. I wouldn't dare. But I've lent into it quite a bit, as it turns out. So <laughs> this is where, this is the turning point, essentially. At this point, they could go and blow up four rocks and do a little shit. I went in a slightly different direction. They head to New Mexico and dressed at first as like UFO hunting tourists. Can you imagine Connery as Mason dressed as like this sort of tourist, like, you know, beam me up and shit, t-shirts, that. I'm with stupid, you know, phone home. They stage the second heist and they break into Area 51. They find the research area. It's all shut up again and it's all dusty now. But the original tech is still there. Danny does some tech stuff. Um, as well as um, sort of know-how of a crazy... Oh, yeah, they use the, the know-how of a crazy local conspiracy nut who's been the object of ridicule in the area for decades and is played by Richard Harris. And he has some nice moments with Connery. Because why not? Inside the base, they find uh, the, the matching tech from the Pentagon and they fit it together. And Stanley finds out the next piece of the puzzle. And Stanley's like, oh... Oh, 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 boy, oh, bananas. Oh, bouncing Betty in a bale of brown bananas in a boat. And Stanley's like, these meteors, John, they're not just random chunks of rock hitting our planet due to statistical probability and eventuality. Oh, no, 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 this is not a natural disaster. This is not a freak occurrence. And this is not a goddamn dream. It's an attack. And that could be a trailer moment because it's just yeah, going to ruin everything. So yeah. <laughs> we learn now that the rocks heading to Earth have been weaponized. That they are, in fact, uh, there is an alien intelligence at work. The rocks are a weapon and humanity, humanity has been targeted. Inside Area 51, the tech now working, troops, Marines, men in black and Crispin Glover break in and are about to catch our heroes. Mason is like, you want to hang around, play with all this ET shit? AI. AI, ET, fucking CIA, FBI, ABC, ITN. We're here, they're there, and now they're fucking boxed in, and we're boxed in with them, you dumb dick. And uh, Stanley's like, there is one way out. And uh, troops burst in from above and start racing down the ancient stairway towards the bunker where they are. And inside... Uh, it, Stanley is like reconstructing the machine now from all the different parts that he's brought together. And it's roughly the size and shape of Griff's hoverboard, if you know what I mean. Um, so it's quite chunky. 
and it's humming and throbbing dangerously. And Mason is like, don't tell me you want to use whatever the hell this is. I do. Well, you better not fucking tell me it's a goddamn spaceship. And uh, the troops are getting closer. And Stanley is like, no, no, John, it's not a spaceship. Oh, thank fuck for that. And there's a beat. And Stanley looks at him and says, it's a time machine. And they both look at each other. And Mason then says, go fuck yourself. And suddenly there's an explosion as the door explodes and the troops swarm in. And Richard Harris refuses to go anywhere, saying he's waited his whole life to make it in here and he has no intention of leaving now. He's like, go, go, you glorious loons. Fly and flee and save time in your thoughts for the man who always knew the truth and who was always right after all. That's the only characterization. But there's more of that in the past, but I didn't spend any time on Richard Harris. Uh, so Mason and Goodspeed leave Harris to defend the base and buy them time. Stanley activates the console and he and Mason are surrounded by a ball of white lightning and the hairs of ghost static and they're all up on end. And Mason is like, oh, fuck. And they disappear in a burst of anti-power and molecular warp tech. The troops burst in and find Richard Harris loving it. Uh, the captain of the troops, who's probably Dean Norris, says, what the fuck is this? And then Crispin Glover arrives and takes out a, a piece of tech himself. And Hank says, or uh, Dean Norris says, and who on earth are you? And Glover says, who said I was from Earth? And he grins a creepy grin and shimmers with heat. And Hank gawps and Glover presses a button which then flashes blue and he looks upward expectantly. And we cut to the stratosphere and we see uh, a meteor the size of a pony shoot down into the atmosphere and it falls from the sky and does a pure bay shot and plummets down, down, down to the desert below. And in the base for troops and Hank all look up as the noise increases and Glover hits another series of controls and he too starts to crackle with white lightning. And Dean Norris says, what the fuck? And Harris says, and just like that, secrets lost, promises forgotten, and glorious revelations. And the meteor hits and the entire area of 51, Dean Norris and Harris and the troops and the base and the surrounding desert is utterly destroyed. And we okay. cut to, a, to an identical desert and the wind picks up and the sand swirls and within the swirling dense cloak of sand, lightning flashes, silhouettes were revealed in the flashes and then the wind drops, the sand falls away and Stanley and Mason are revealed as they collapse to the ground. And we learn um, that the only way um, to stop the alien rocks that, um, uh, is to get the full tech before it was found in the 40s and brought to Roswell because it's all being damaged and they have to go and use the original source. And Mason is like, and what the fuck does that mean? And Stanley says, welcome to 1921, John. And they have appeared in the same spot, but obviously it's pre-military base and they're in a cave and it's pure back to the future three and they're chased by a bear. I don't give a fuck. And they have to hitchhike back to Northern California where Stanley has found out where the alien tech has been buried in an unyet um, unfound area, um, you know, before it's taken to Roswell, you know, 10 or so. 20 years later. We also learned that um, aliens, by the way, have been visiting throughout the years, throughout the decades, throughout the centuries. The last time was in the 40s um, when the ship present was well, but there have been uh, countless other visits with tech left behind. Um, and as of 1921, some of it remains unfound. Now the tech that Stanley and Mason need is in good condition in a special location. Stanley finds out where it is via special map shit. And only now in 1921, 
the Stanley can do the maths, discover the location where they have to break in and steal this fresh tech. And Stanley finds out and he says, oh, you are the bright, white, hot center of pain in my entire universe. And Mason's like, what? Where is it? Where's the tech? Where do we have to go? And Stanley looks at him and says, where do you goddamn think? And they have to break into Alcatraz. Oh, and it's 1921 and it's, it's newly opened. And in they go, third heist. Stanley must pretend to be a convict, um, having falsified uh, restaurants and so forth. And he beams perhaps into the correct location um, using the last of the 1998 alien tech. Um, and he gets himself shipped off as a prisoner to the rock. Uh, while Stanley is doing this, Mason is posing as a guard. He, of course, is mocked by at least one fellow guard and an inmate for being too old, and he fucks them up. Mason is having a hard time getting his head around the craziness of all of this. Aliens, time travel, global and intergalactic intrigue, and the truth of the meteors comes out, because it's not just a bunch of rocks, it's a fleet, it's an armada, and uh, Stanley says, armada geddon, and uh, Mason just oh, looks wow. at him. Uh, now, inside Alcatraz, Mason and Stanley must break into the hidden nooks of the prison to find the location of the tech they need, while Stanley is dealing with a cellmate called Trunk, a massive self-confessed murderer and defiler of bodies. And Stanley says, not an Elvis Costello fan, I think. Uh, Mason discovers the location uh, in the mines, which are still being used underneath the prison. Um, so Mason frees Stanley. Um, from his cell after Goodspeed has had a few encounters of his own. Um, so Mason punches people and there may be a gunfight or a firefight in the prison block just to use that because otherwise I'm a hypocrite. And then they make it uh, out of there to the um, underneath, um, you know, into the, into the caves. Meanwhile, in the warden's office, someone blows the cover and sounds the alarm and we pull back and we see the warden's dead, shot in the head, and we find out the person pressing the alarm is Glover. Mason and Stanley are on their way out. They've got their shit and they're still underground. And they're confronted by one of Glover's stooges, now dressed as a guard. He's the same dude who blew up the bread truck. And uh, Stanley's like, oh, Betty. Uh, and he's like, how is this possible? And Mason um, then just shoots him in the face and says, who cares? But then the guard stands up again and smiles to his blown apart face. And Mason is like, oh, what the fuck is this? And the man shimmers and reforms, revealing himself to be a seven foot insectoid alien cunt. <laughs> and it grins maliciously. And Mason has a gunfight with this thing, but it is resilient. And it knocks the uh, alien chrome gun, um, like Mason knocks the alien chrome gun you know, in down into a nook or something, but he runs out of bullets. Mason and the alien cunt have like a massive fist fight. And Mason lands some good hits, but is ultimately fucked up and thrown around and punched hard in the head and body. Meanwhile, Stanley is having a tussle with a human guard, and he's reaching into a nook trying to get to the chrome fallen alien gun as he's being throttled by the guard. He elbows the guard, grabs the gun, kicks the guard, who slips off an edge and falls down into the water. And Mason, meanwhile, is done for, but Stanley shoots um, the alien's gun. But it, uh, but it misses the alien, and Mason is like bloody on the ground. He's like, oh, spectacular. But <clears throat> the, the projectile flies across the cavern, explodes the far wall, causing a tidal wave from the San Francisco Bay water to come smashing in and hit and smashes into the alien and probably pulverizes him against the rock. And he's fucking dead, this alien. And Stanley is like, are you okay, John? 
And Mason was like, I haven't had my ass handed to me like that since that Bay City Rollers concert in 74. Uh, Mason and Goodspeed must escape the flooding caverns and have a massive gunfight. Maybe that's the bit in the prison block. Um, <clears throat> so now they have the tech they need um, to access the alien assault probe and meteor in 1998. So Stanley and Mason get into a firefight with guards, aliens, and Glover. They're pinned down, they're taking heavy fire. Stanley tries to fit the newly retrieved tech in with all of the other bits he's got. And it's kind of like a bit of a puzzle box. And he's sort of having fun with it, you know, working it out as they're like carrying and the walls are exploding under gunfire around them and Connery's shooting back and Mason's swearing a lot and, um, and, and he's using like, you know, an old 1920s gun. And in the nick of time, Stanley fits it all together really quite fast and he goes, go on with that. And they use it to time machine uh, forward and they escape just as, you know, gunfire rains down. Um, but as they leap, by the way, Trunk, the nasty and massive cellmate of Stanley's, reaches them and attacks just as the, the, uh, the Stanley triggers the, the device. And they go forward and they're transferred to 1998 uh, back and they leap from the past but due to weird calculations in the revolving Earth and some shit, uh, which is different when you go forward in time and back, whatever, they're no longer on Alcatraz, but now they're... Um, they're actually in 1998 in Paris and then in the sewers. And Mason is like um, trying to get his bearings and Stanley is trying to get his bearings, but Trunk has the drop on them, grabbing Mason's gun. And he's about to shoot Mason and Stanley when a giant mutant crocodile smashes out from the dirty water and bites the man in half. And Mason and Stanley both swear and escape. And Stanley says, I guess sometimes you can believe everything you read. So now, we have, uh, they have all the pieces of tech that they need. Uh, we learn that Glover is a time traveling man in black who has allegiance to the aliens, having encountered them during the civil war where he was a soldier and abducted and spliced into a hybrid of evil. Most uh, are harvested or dissected when taken by these aliens, but Glover proved to be the perfect agent for them and uh, the corrupt government people on earth, you know, he's their go-to in between now. So Stanley recognizes Glover from the original microfilm and there is a reveal at some point that it was Glover who killed JFK. And he did a lot of us, uh, other nasty things. So we both went there a little bit. Nice. Uh, now there is one more heist that Mason and Goodspeed must perform. 1998, they have just enough power to perform uh, no more than one or two little jumps. Uh, they could go and get Carla and the baby and Jade, and they could go and jump back and live the rest of their lives in like the 1800s, for example. Um, and Stanley is tempted, but it's actually Mason for once who was thinking of the bigger picture, and uh, he's not willing to let Earth end in 1998. Just because a bunch of jag can't keep it in their pants, whatever that means. So now Mason and Stanley perform one more trip, a one-way trip most likely, a trip to stop the rock, even as Earth has sent some astronaut miners up there to detonate from the inside. Stanley and Mason must now use these astronauts as a distraction to get to and inside the main meteor where it has been hollowed out and is being powered by a massive alien engine. That's right, the meteor is a machine which is now a, a, like a weaponized um, and it's been and it's been got like a little sort of bare minimum alien task force inside just steering it, but it's probably a suicide mission, which means they have nothing to lose. So Mason and Stanley get inside the rock, they beam in, uh, leaving Paris moments before it is utterly destroyed by the aliens. Uh, who sent this larger barrage against, perhaps against Stanley, 
uh, and, and everything. Uh, or maybe they just don't like the French. No one ever chooses Italy. Um, so Paris is destroyed and Stanley and Mason beam up and away. Third act, uh, we're inside the meteor and there are some crossover moments. It's a real Rosencrantz and Guildenstern one because none of the none of the characters from Armageddon, nothing has changed. They're not aware of any of this, but they're little things that we see, you know, tiny sort of scenes from different angles and stuff. Maybe Buscemi comes back for a cameo. Um, so this is why it can't be 98 because it's happening at the same time that I want Bay to direct both films. So I, I guess it has to be 99, but that's okay, I think. Um, actually, so the, inside the meteor, it's all a bit like Kananga's hollowed out place in, you know, in Live and Let Die at the end. It's fairly basic rock formation. Stanley and Mason are about to be caught by the alien troops uh, who are maintaining the equipment. Uh, when on the surface of the meteor, Bashemi starts firing that massive machine gun, which just which draws attention from the uh, alien military and the scientists inside the rock. Um, and so our heroes can use this to escape capture, fully breach, inside, uh, breach the rock. Climax has uh, Glover follow them on board. Now deep inside the main asteroid, Stanley and Mason fight the garrison of alien military, including the main commander, who's a, who's a Riker. Uh, Connery ends up having another massive fist fight with this eight foot wanker, and uh, it's good stuff. Round two, Dick Reed. Uh, he takes one for the team, getting beaten up a bit, as Stanley uses this moment to get inside the main control cockpit and reprogram the meteor and to lower the defenses. All of this stops the alien military from staging their planned ambush against these astronaut miners on the surface, allowing them to plant this nuclear device. We learn actually that if the ship from Armageddon had landed where it was meant to, then the Earth astronauts would have been picked off immediately by the waiting yeah, alien commandos, but they overshot, and this is actually what saved their lives. So right at the end, Stanley is beaten up and shot at by a laser um, and also given some cat and mouse antics from Glover. And in and around the center of the meteor in the alien control room, Stanley must find a way to turn off the rock's defense grid, all the while avoiding and hiding from an increasingly deranged Glover. And by the end, they have it out with photon grenades and force shields. And if we hadn't learned earlier, this is where we get really into Glover's backstory, being an ex-human, all of that, and he's being mutated and spliced and gene merged. And Stanley, as he is taking cover from a laser barrage fired by a gloating maniacal Glover, you know, Stanley says, your mother must be so proud. And now Glover's spine cracks and elongates and his jaw breaks open and, and he's got like revealing predator-esque mandibles. It's kind of like, you know, late 90s CGI. It's a bit of a scorpion king wannabe and a gaping mole. And then six glistening wormy tentacles bore out from Glover's torso and snap and wrap themselves around Stanley. And Stanley's choking, he's like, oh, of course, the perfect end to the perfect fuck of a day. And uh, he manages to grab a laser scalpel thing and slice his way through. And the spray from one of Glover's tentacles hits the console that Stanley was trying to reach. And it's pure, you know, acid blood in it. So um, it starts sabotaging all the defenses. Stanley then gets pinned by an enraged Glover, mouth open, remaining tentacles snapping and whipping in the air. Stanley grabs a tentacle, rams it into the console, further igniting the panel in sparks and green flame and sending the flame up the tentacle into Glover, sending him screeching, flying back to crash through a bank of computers and in a further burst of fire. Uh, Stanley 
turns, he also manages to redirect the smaller rocks. They were actually being aimed um, at the little Scottish pub, just as a final fuck you to Stanley and John, uh, but he manages to divert them. Or maybe actually was, you know, maybe Mason does that whilst, whilst Stanley's getting beaten up by Glover. Um, and so that's nice. Lots of bay type low angles from Scotland and, you know, Carlo and the daughter, you know, Ringo and Jade all looking up as the rocks are streaking through the sky right at them on the highland. But it's redirected and the rocks miss the pub and splash down into the lock right next to the pub. And all other rocks splash down harmlessly or even sent off into space, uh, all the little ones. So Stanley and Mason rush through the now unstable and collapsing caves and tunnels within the meteor. Alarms are blaring. They steal this tiny little ship that looks like a, a car-sized rock and they blast off from inside. Um, and in, in, back inside the control room, a fucked up Glover emerges with all sorts of green shit coming out of him from the inside of the console wreckage in time to see the little ship escape um, and then see the demolition initiated. Demo detonation initiated, detonation initiated, flash up on the little screen. And he stares at the retreating capsule in a rage. And maybe we have a little shot of Bruce Willis being, here goes nothing or something. <laughs> and Glover, his tentacles are out and his maw is wide open as he hisses in fury. Then the entire meteor explodes as the bomb detonates in an atomic shit show. Stanley and Mason inside the cramped and actually really, really, really quite shitty escape pod, comically shitty cramped escape pod. And they bicker over the controls as they ride down to earth to Scotland to land harmlessly outside the pub, scaring some locals and sheep, at which uh, Carla comes and, uh, and the thing, and they look at each other. Uh, yeah, Carla and Jade come out and they look at each other and they say at the same time, Stanley, Dad. Um, and they rush to the pod as Stanley and Mason emerge, uh, surrounded by suspicious, intoxicated Scottish people, and, and they all embrace. And the meteor has been destroyed along with the remaining aliens. And Carla is like, is it over, Stanley? And Stanley's like, oh, I think any mothership or alien high command out there should get the message. Yeah, don't fuck with Earth. And now, amidst the remains of the other rocks, etc., Stanley and his family next to the lock, uh, and Mason and his family, and all the local Scottish drinkers, they sit down at the pub to have a pint. And then someone mentions that the rock that landed in the lock um, that just missed the pub, um, he hopes that it hasn't caused more problems. And Mason nods somberly and soberly, and Stanley scoffs and like, we've been dealing with men in black types, government stooges, trained assassins, twenties miners, and hostile aliens. What else could there possibly? And he trails off as a rumbling starts, and all the pint glasses dance across the tables. And Mason's like, oh shit it! And they head outside in time to see a massive dinosaur rear up out of the lock and roar loudly, roar loudly, and everyone looks. And Stanley, you know, looking at this thing, but talking to John next to him, says, John, you mentioned there was whiskey. And Mason's like, I'll get the round in. And as Mason heads off to grab the single malt, Stanley and the others watch for dinosaurs that eats a sheep. And Stanley, calling after Mason, says, better make that a double. And before you ask, I'll take it straight up. And it cuts to credits. And that's, that's the end of the rocks. <laughs> and I got a tagline. I got a tagline that seemed to uh, to fit. Um, it's kind of Thunderbolt esque. It's from below! Exclamation mark. From above! From beyond! Two exclamation marks. This is one party that's sure to rock! 
exclamation mark. Oh my god. Amazing. That, Sheppy, Jesus. Even like the make it a double, I was going to say almost, I was waiting for it to be cheesy enough to say on the rocks. I went the other way. Let the audience do the work. Amazing. I mean, look, you were within your license to do that. I fully agree. It's right up there with the Friends Fever Dream. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, that pitch. I love it. I bloody love it. That's so cool. Thanks, man. Well, um, I thought once you start on that direction, the, you might as well just push it as far as you can go. The cage, like the lines and the, the absence of swearing were very well realized, Ashepi. I think you got your fuck in at just the right moment as well. The fuck mm-hmm. of the day is nice as well. And like, <laughs> You've got a wonderful Chekhov's gun there with a giant mutant crocodile. If you're going to mention one of the French thrillers at the beginning, you better have it snap someone's head off before the end, right? You know, so. <laughs> I, don't well, I don't remember much about Armageddon, but I remember Paris gets destroyed. So it had to be Paris. That's really nice. Really nice. It's really wickedly thought through. That it's so complex. <laughs> Probably loads of these stories I haven't even picked up there from Armageddon, which is really happy. One thing I do love you've got there is a beat, which is very. I don't think I've ever really appreciated till you've thrown it in there. But um, was it Trunk? Was that the name of the guy that goes back? Yes. To the with him? Like that moment where something wacky and strange happens to a stooge like that. Like they're in on the adventure and they time travel as well. But just the fact that they don't really question it and then they have to <laughs> jump on the people when they get there, that really makes yeah. me very happy. Always. Always. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he, if he got away, if he just shot them and there wasn't a massive mutant crocodile and he just got out onto the streets of 1998 Paris, this 1921 convict, I reckon he would succeed. He'd be fine. He'd totally adapt. He'd have a huge adventure. <laughs> he'd steal some clothes. He'd get up to no good. I would see that film as well. Yeah, you get it. Yeah, totally. It's a what if one. Yeah, right. He's just trying to get in touch with relatives and it's called Trunk Cools. It writes itself. Amazing. Yes. Um, I'm well up for it. Well, Sheppy, thank you, man. What a treat. Thank you. Thank you, Jimmy. That was was great fun. Well, thank you to Jason for for the suggestion. Great. Cracking. Well, my friend. All right, Jimmy. Sometimes I set weird ones and sometimes I set unfair ones. And this one's quite unfair because it's a big one and it's a weird one, but it has to be done sooner or later. And I think we might as well now is the time to do it, Jimmy. Maybe it was on your shortlist. Maybe it was something you had floated around. Um, But it's it's a biggie. Now, you can interpret this in a few different ways. But basically, Jimmy, what I would like from you is a sequel to Back to the Holy shit. Yes, please. Now, I would like a Back to the Future 4, but you if you really would like to, you can do an alternate Back to the Future 3, I think. I, I don't think, you know, let, no, let's I leave it. Yeah, I hear you. That's nice. No, Shabby. Holy crap. There it is. Yeah. Dang, man. It was one. It was one that, um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I was waiting to pull the pin on that for quite some time. But yeah, I think so. Yeah, very exciting. Very exciting, Jimmy. Uh, so I can't wait to hear that. Jesus. In the meantime, the finish off for this uh, lovely edition, which I have a lovely with, with you, Jimmy. How do we end such an epic 
ridiculous pod. I really don't know, Sheffy, because the iconic line is about welcoming people to an establishment rather than like, you know, saying goodbye from an establishment. So I really don't know what to do about that, really. How in Zeus's butthole can we end this goddamn podcast? <laughs> like rats. <laughs> Hi, Jimmy here. Hope you enjoyed the pod. We'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to connect on Instagram or Facebook at ShouldersPod or reach out to us through our website, ShouldersPod.com. We'd also really appreciate it if you could rate and review the podcast wherever you're downloading us from. Until next time.